0: Uh, my name is Nicholas Gaudier. I'm the Assistant Curator for Artificial Intelligence at the Florida Museum of Natural History at the University of Florida. Uh, my background is originally in archaeology, um, where I trained in Mediterranean and Near Eastern archaeology. Um, and then I transitioned to a more paleoclimate focus. So looking at the broader scale environmental and social uh, context of cultural change in the past. Uh, And so that led me more into the statistics and machine learning side of things. Um, That led me to my current position, which is basically involves uh, using AI, machine learning, uh, data science, and other computational tools uh, to study the past in all its different facets. So that includes both looking at the social factors, so modeling uh, human behavior uh, and how that might change over time, as well as uh, analyzing direct information from artifacts and natural history collections uh, as well as modeling like the broader context of climate and environmental change over long time periods. Uh, and so that the central goal of my research is basically to see what we can learn from the long-term history of the human past uh, in order to inform uh, inform current day uh, adaptations to future climate change.
1: Linnean, The,
0: Linnean. the Linnean Society. The, Linnean the Linnean
1: Society, of, society of, of, of London. 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 Linnaean Society of London. We wanted to talk about the hot topic that's hitting all the, the headlines in the moment, which is AI, mm-hmm. which yeah. forms part of your work. Maybe if you could just explain to us, what is AI?
0: When we talk about AI today, we usually are really referring to machine learning, which is a broad set of kind of statistical, uh, computational and engineering uh, innovations really in the last you know, 20 or 30 years. Uh, that allows us to learn patterns from data in ways that we never really could before. Uh, So traditional statistics really relies on on what you might call structured data. So something where you can easily uh, put information into tables uh, or columns and rows in a spreadsheet, for example, you have very clearly defined variables and observations, and then you might have a really good idea of some actual model of how uh, that data may have been created. And so traditional statistics involves combining that structured data with an equally structured model, uh, which could be pretty powerful, uh, especially if you're, you're doing calculations by hand. Uh, but nowadays, we have computers to do a lot of that work for us. And so machine learning is really the next evolution of that process, where we're able to, instead of, of telling a computer what we want it to do, we can actually have the computer teach itself what it needs to do in order to, to detect interesting patterns. Uh, And so a couple of innovations that have really let that happen. First is just the the speed uh, of our computers and the computational power available to us, uh, right? So like the the chips inside of your cell phone are more powerful uh, than those that we use for the moon landing uh, back in the day. And so just that astronomical increase in computing power has allowed us to uh, churn through uh, different kinds of algorithms or tasks that may have been impossible in the past. And then paired with that too, We also have an expansion in the amount of data available to us, specifically through the internet. We can now uh, connect disparate sources of information that might never have been able to be connected before, uh, and then combine that with our large-scale computing power uh, to really uh, innovate in in many ways. And so again, I think the key difference between machine learning as we know it today and what you might have learned in a statistics class uh, back in school uh, is the automaticity, is that you're really looking at it from a higher level of looking at ways that the computer can actually find these interesting patterns. Um, so one example of that might be how you can apply these algorithms to unstructured data. So unlike a spreadsheet, something like maybe an image uh, or a sound clip or a natural language that doesn't really have a clear demarcation between observations and variables and things like that um, but nevertheless, you as a human with your brain and your real intelligence can look at an image and immediately process what's going on with it. But if you're able to take you know, each individual pixel and feed that into an, a statistical algorithm, it might have a really difficult time knowing what's going on. And so uh, the, the recent advances in machine learning that we're more and more referring to as AI are algorithms that are really able to capture these patterns in unstructured data. So to look at an image of a person and tell who it is or classify different kinds of artifacts or uh, animals from natural history collections uh, just as easily as a human can. And again, what that really relies on is having this large amount of data from humans who've actually gone in and looked at pictures of birds, for example, and labeled what those birds are in the image. Uh, And with these advanced algorithms, we can then look at patterns that associate those two features.
1: You've touched on, likely on some examples there. I wonder if we could just, Give us an understanding of how AI could be used to create new understandings about the natural world.
0: I think there's two primary ways AI can help give us new understandings about the natural world. One is just being able to process the data we already have. So natural history museums the world over are filled with uh, tons, literal tons of specimens Uh, in their warehouses or the extended metadata, so field notes, pictures, or other observations, that it would just be infeasible for a single person to comb through and process all of them. Uh, At least at my museum, that's this ongoing effort of digitizing the collections from decades ago, even just reading what the notes on a given label are uh, and trying to enter that into a computer is a monumental task. So at a very base level, uh, AI and its ability to work with unstructured data can help us speed up this process. So we can look at pictures that people have collected in the field uh, and detect you know, what kinds of animals or plants might be in them. Uh, we can look at images of handwritten documents and in- actually infer what the writing is on that. So that's useful for uh, transliterating field notes that people might've taken hundred years ago uh, or for extracting data from historical sources. Like if you wanna know what the weather was 300 years ago, we actually have great paper logs that many people like in uh, sailing ships wrote down by hand. Uh, And people can go through and painstakingly transliterate what they see in those documents by hand. But nowadays we can also just take images of those documents directly uh, in order to transcribe what's written on the page to extract that data. I think another great example too is looking at past pandemics. Um, So again, there's a wealth of information about uh, Outbreaks during the Black Death, for example, that people wrote by hand uh, in historical documents. And there's some recent innovations just trawling through all of those paper sources to automatically extract the names, locations and times of known outbreaks. So they help us collate all this existing data in ways we never could before. I think the second way that AI is helping us understand the natural world better is to actually uh, understand the processes that underlie change in the natural world. So again, when I mentioned traditional statistical models, you actually have to go into it with some idea of what process you're looking at, how it's structured, how the data was created, what kinds of variability you expect there to be. But very often when you're studying some natural process, you have no idea what's actually going on mechanistically under the hood. You know, we may have some very high level understanding of how evolution works, what that actually means you know, in a minute to minute or decade to decade or millennia to millennia context for organisms can be a different story. And so what AI can do in that respect is help us learn not just patterns, but also processes from the natural world. So one of the places that have shown the greatest advances in this front is uh, weather prediction and climate modeling, where we have just terabytes upon terabytes of observations, you know, minute to hourly to decadal, across the entire globe, across hundreds of variables like temperature, precipitation, humidity, and wind. Uh, and being able to apply these very flexible AI systems to all that data can actually learn the underlying processes. So it helps help us with things like weather prediction, but also in reconstructing climates in the past. And so that provides us a more mechanistic understanding of things that may otherwise have been hidden to us. And then I think the real power is combining these two approaches. So looking at museum collections, and then actually extracting some kind of uh, systematic process-based understanding of what led to the variability that we see in those collections.
1: The use of AI might just supersede our current methods of research. Why am I mistaken in that belief?
0: I think it will extend our current research. It's not going to supersede it. just in the way we can think of calculators. You know, People still do math, even though we have calculators. It just makes doing math easier. And in many cases, it helps people do more complicated tasks than they could otherwise. Uh, so I think that's always been the history of any kind of technological advancement, particularly when it comes to knowledge collection, is that uh, advances in that front doesn't mean that we stop trying to seek new knowledge. It means that we can seek it more efficiently.
1: And would you say then that the researchers who aren't adopting new forms of AI methods might be left behind?
0: I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to not engage with AI in one way or another. So even if you may not use it directly in your work, one of the data sets that you may use in your work may have been generated by AI or may have relied on observations collected through AI tools. Uh, Because as these are becoming increasingly common and ubiquitous throughout science, it's becoming harder and harder to avoid that kind of work. Um, Most, say, like global maps of, say, like if you want to map every single tree on the planet, uh, for example, or anything that happens at this large scale involving integrating information from satellite imagery or field observations or local recordings, nowadays involves AI at some point in that process. You know, even if it's not the actual algorithm that created a map, but maybe the satellite sensor in space had some kind of AI algorithm built into it itself. So it's becoming increasingly pervasive in some way.
1: When Linnaeus created his method of binomial nomenclature, he he had to create sort of a forced system, as you might know, using a sexual system. And he was very much aware that it wasn't going to work, but he felt at the time that it was the best thing he had. And that was the way he moved forward processing this information. We have these boundaries being our human minds, the way we perceive the world and the information based on our preconceptions and our ideas. Is there a possibility that AI can generate new understandings and ways of doing things? How would AI systematize the world? And could we have suddenly a new understanding of the way it could be done?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of human cognition, at least at baseline, focuses on things like linearity. So basically assuming that there's some proportionate relationship between inputs to a system and outputs. You know, so if we raise the CO2 in the atmosphere by this amount, then the temperature is going to go up by that amount. Uh, And what we know in the natural world is characterized by nonlinearities, by sudden change, thresholds, accelerations, and feedbacks, which we're seeing in the climate system right now, for example. And so... That's the biggest way I think AI can help us see these patterns that maybe we're not necessarily keyed in on detecting in the first place. So looking at uh, nonlinearities in nature and society, as well as looking at connections between things. So how some phenomenon you're looking at in one place on the planet might be intimately related to ecology and climate interactions on the other side of the planet. That could be something that'd be very difficult for humans to see with our very like, focused cognition and thinking, maybe just looking at a single place in time. Um, now I'm going to go ahead and contradict myself and say that humans are actually pretty good at thinking about these patterns intuitively. So maybe when we consciously reason through something, we might lean on linear reasoning. Uh, our subconscious is actually very good at detecting these patterns. Like I can look at your face or I can look at a tree and recognize what it is without having to consciously think about it because the underlying processes in my brain are actually exquisitely well adapted to detecting nonlinearities in the natural world. Uh, And in many cases our what we call biases, the preconceptions that we bring into any given place actually make our inferences and our understanding of the natural world better. So we always like to see biases when they fail, when it's very clear that our preconceptions have led us to make some kind of wrong idea about the world but we don't really pay attention to when our preconceptions help us understand the world, right? My assumption that the sun is gonna come up tomorrow informs all sorts of my behavior. And that would be kind of insane for me to every single day question whether I believe the sun is gonna come up. And so, whereas I don't wanna draw this one-to-one comparison between how the human mind works and how AI works, a lot of the advances in AI have been started at least with some analogies to how the human brain works. So, for example, how to actually process the nonlinearity and connections. Uh, a lot of the fundamental innovations in uh, computer vision techniques that can like, look at a photo and identify what that is are inspired by structures and neurons in your eye. Uh, again, there's not this one-to-one correlation, but at least there's a lot of uh, rhyming between how those two systems work. And again, uh, another way that AI systems can become better is by having, you don't want to call it bias, but some qu- sort of prior assumptions. Uh, and a lot of the ways that more advanced uh, AIs become more effective is by building in larger and larger assumptions. So, for example, if you've used a large language model like ChatGPT before, uh, one of the reasons it works so well is because it has such a, a huge amount of, quote unquote, knowledge stored inside of it, it has this amount of accumulated information that it's able to lean on when it is actually chatting with you in real time in order to create realistic text responses. And so I think the strength in AI is actually its ability to be more flexible uh, and to use more of these innovations from how the human mind works. And I think there's a a good two-way street potentially for interaction that we can both make these AI systems work better, but also learn more about how our own mind works.
1: One topic you mentioned there is is the bias, and we've seen in the past what the bias has done in regards to human relations, but in focusing on the natural world, has there been any examples in your experience where perhaps these biases have gone wrong in regards to the study of the natural world?
0: I think the most obvious source of bias for people working uh, in natural history uh, museums is the uneven uh, sampling of where we actually get our data from. Uh, so, the classic example I always remember uh, as an archaeologist uh, is if you look at early uh, archaeological surveys of Mesopotamia, you notice a lot of the towns and cities people were finding happen to be near roads, right? Because if you are some uh, 18th century British archaeologist, you're not really leaving your jeep very frequently, right? You're just looking where you can easily access things. And this turns out to be a huge problem, not just in archaeology, but in all of natural history. So if you look at global distributions of where certain species have been found on the planet, you can usually detect things like human settlements and road patterns just in the distributions of where we've observed things, because there's that bias and that people look for things where it's easy to find them. Uh, and the problem can occur is when that data gets treated as the real thing. So this data set of where we've seen, say, a certain kind of bird is real. I mean, when we assume it's real, even though it has all sorts of biases and imperfections in how it was collected, but then we, say, build some model to predict how this bird species is going to respond to climate change, that can then actually inform conservation efforts in different ways. And so we have to be really careful about thinking about the imperfect ways that the data sets we use have been created in the first place.
1: Can AI create an understanding that you thought you didn't understand what the output was at all?
0: In the short term, absolutely. There's constraints like that. And that's one of the more exciting parts of doing this kind of work. Uh, Again, one of the things I I use AI for most frequently is modeling the climate in the past and present. Uh, And very frequently, you will find uh, the AI system is able to generate realistic realistic-looking climate patterns in ways that you quite not, don't really expect. And you have a hard time trying to understand how it got to that point. Uh, Sometimes this can be because of issues in the data. So maybe the weather data set you're using has some weather station that got knocked over in one year. And so there's some bias in that. But other times it's because it is picking up on these like long distance patterns that you may never never, uh, otherwise would have expected. So for example, Maybe the weather here where I'm researching is actually tightly related to how oceans are behaving near the South Pole. And that might've been something I didn't anticipate, but the AI system is able to pick up on. Although in the longer term, I really don't see AI outstripping our capacity to understand. If anything, I see AI as a tool for us to extend our understanding of the natural world. Uh, So one example is AlphaGo, which was this uh, AI system developed to play uh, the board game Go. Uh, And there's some famous uh, games between it and some real human opponents uh, where it made some moves that at the time was called like the God move. So completely uh, seemingly meaningless and nonsensical at the time it was made. It went against all the intuitions and technical know-how of the human players of the game. But it turned out that that move actually set the AI system up to win and, you know, 10 or 100 moves later in ways that they didn't even realize at the time. Uh, So that is, again, in the short term, an example of AI knowing something that we don't know. But in the years since that, then, the game of Go has evolved to incorporate those kinds of strategies. And so it really is a two-way street. And think of it in a long-term perspective, right? If you are someone living in the Iron Age who's never encountered, you know, steam technology or mechanical technology or gears or anything like that, you're going to have a very tough time thinking about, you know, quote unquote, mechanistic understanding of how something might work. Um, And those technological innovations can actually enhance and improve the way we think about the world around us. And so I see no difference between that and AI.
1: What's next for you and your work with AI? And what's next for AI in regards to the natural world and museums?
0: One application of AI I'm I'm really excited about uh, is something called, it's called artificial societies or agent-based modeling but there are ways of modeling humans and human behavior or the behavior of any kind of individual acting in some sort of collective. And so agent-based modeling has been kind of this parallel track uh, to typical machine learning that we see today. Uh, Very frequently it will involve modeling how individuals follow some set of rules and then how the combination of those rules lead to some unexpected emergent outcome. So one example of this is modeling how birds flock Uh, or fish, school, or insect swarm. And it turns out you can replicate those kinds of very intricate patterns that seem to be very centrally controlled just from three simple rules that govern how each individual bird or fish or bug behaves in that system. So you fly a certain distance next to your neighbor. If they turn, you turn a certain distance to follow them. That's it. And so with these small-scale interactions, you can build up a larger understanding of how the whole operates. So that's really exciting for understanding, particularly human and animal behavior, the the dynamics of it and how it might change in a way that you can't get at through natural history collections alone because they're they're usually static. Uh, And again, as I said, this has been evolving in parallel uh, to machine learning as we traditionally think of it for a long time, but I see more and more potential for interaction between the two. Um, So a lot of there's a lot of uh, crosstalk now in fields like uh, monitoring how drones fly, drone swarms fly together or self-driving cars can navigate uh, in a city together. And so the more and more that kind of these advances in machine learning and understanding how uh, anybody, a computer or a human, can intake information about the world and then make decisions on it and then act upon that can also help us understand how humans are doing similar processes. Uh, there's some very interesting toy models. There's a traditional agent-based model from ecology called wolf-sheep predation, where you have a bunch of wolves and sheep uh, walking around a field, eating each other. And you're basically, with very few lines of code, able to replicate some very uh, central ideas in ecology and ecological theory. Um, There's a kind of fun toy extension of that, where each of the sheep has a little, quote-unquote, neural network That allows it to learn behaviors about, you know, maybe I should change the speed that I'm moving or how frequently I turn in order to avoid the wolves. Now, this is in no way saying that we are, you know, writing a computer program giving sheeps real brains or anything like that, but we're able to move one step closer to this uh, more mechanistic process based understanding of how these systems evolve and change over time. Uh, And that's something that, again, going back to talking about how humans think about the world can be very difficult for us to reason about. You know, you can think about how one bird may be uh, behaving flying around your backyard, but thinking about how a hundred or a thousand birds are interacting in a flock can just be impossible. Your brain doesn't have the processing power to do that. And that's how this back and forth between humans uh, thinking about these processes and then feeding them into a machine learning system or a simulation system, and then looking at the outputs can be a real benefit to both.
1: Linnean Society. The Linnean. the Linnean Society. The Linnean Society of, of London. London. Of London.